As you're finding your seat, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with us to Genesis chapter 1. I know that's probably not what you were expecting me to say, so allow me to preface everything that's going to take place this morning with a word of introduction. This morning we're going to be doing something a little bit different. There are certain cultural moments that warrant our attention. A few weeks ago, John MacArthur, he wrote an article on what is transpiring in Canada right now with a call to action for pastors. The article was about a bill that had been recently passed that was soon to become law. The bill is known as Bill C-4, and it is an amendment to the criminal code in Canada. That means this is something very severe. And this bill was amending the criminal code to include the outlaw of so-called conversion therapy. Perhaps this terminology is new to you and you're not familiar with what this is talking about. I'll allow the bill itself to define what conversion therapy is. Quote, Conversion therapy means a practice, treatment, or service designed to A, change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, B, change a person's gender identity to cisgender, C, change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth, D, repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior, E, repress a person's non-cisgender gender identity, or F, repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth, end quote. In case that wasn't entirely clear, conversion therapy is referring to a practice, a treatment, or a service that is designed to convert someone from transgenderism or homosexuality or the rest to so-called heterosexuality. Now, why do they want to outlaw this? Perhaps some might disagree with this practice, but why bring it to Parliament to outlaw this at a national level? Again, from the bill, we'll allow the bill to tell us, in beginning uh, here, quote, whereas conversion therapy, that's what I just read, causes harm to the persons who are subjected to it, whereas conversion therapy causes harm to society because, among other things, it is based on and propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, including the myth that heterosexuality, cisgender, gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. And whereas, in light of those harms, it is important to discourage and denounce the provision of conversion therapy in order to protect the human dignity and equality of all Canadians." End quote. 
as you can see, this bill is written with very broad language. And it effectively disparages and denounces what Scripture says. What Christians have always believed. That there are only two genders. And that heterosexuality, so-called, is the natural intended order of creation. It calls that line of thinking, my friends, a myth. That means what we're about to read today is mythological. And they go on further to say that it causes harm to those who are subjected to it and harm to society. That is a heavy charge that they are laying against this practice. Now, to be fair, this bill was said to have been written with the very damaging forms of conversion therapy that have indeed taken place in the past. There have been instances of people who are using electrical shocks and other forms of electrotherapy and other crude practices in conversion therapy. That we would obviously be absolutely against. That does not establish or maintain human dignity. However, that definition is not included in the bill. But instead, it is broad enough and so expansive that it would even outlaw the basic clear teaching of Scripture from a pastor to the congregation. This bill uses language so broad so as to include pastoral care, pastoral counseling, counseling of any other sort, and even preaching. In fact, as I listened to the press conference of, from the Canadian government themselves, this wasn't some individual speaking about the bill, this is from the Canadian government themselves. They were saying, the members of parliament, as they spoke on the bill, that they had transgender individuals giving testimony and informing how they should think about this bill. And they had an individual there with them. And one of the major, major motivations in this passing was specifically a story about a person seeking counseling from a minister of the gospel. That's one of the things that motivated this bill. So, some might say, well, that's ridiculous. They're not trying to persecute Christians. But it's in the very foundation that that's exactly what this is after. Pastoral counseling, applying Scripture to a person's life, is effectively being called damaging, according to this bill. You cannot provide any form of so-called conversion therapy even to people who are seeking it. Nor can you as a parent take your child outside of Canada to seek this therapy. You as a parent would be facing prison time. All of this has been made illegal, not in a city, not in a county, not in a province, but at a national level, all of Canada, and it is punishable by up to five years in prison. It was passed further unanimously. Both liberal and conservative alike unanimously united in passing this bill. They were saying, members of parliament, that no one wants to be seen going against this bill. Now, Back to the article that I mentioned from John MacArthur. He wrote an open letter to pastors 
sharing a request from some Canadian pastors to join them on January 16th in taking a stand. Today, pastors all over Canada have band together to preach on what Scripture says about homosexuality and transgenderism in an act of open defiance of this law to declare boldly and publicly that no human institution has the authority to dictate to the church what is preached. John MacArthur's letter asked for people here in America and all over the world to join in with our brothers in Canada in this effort that we might all take a stand for what God's Word says. So that's what we'll be doing today. The title of our sermon is very clear and simple, A Biblical View of Homosexuality. Before we get started, I do want to make one clear statement about where this church, Flatland Bible Church, stands when it comes to civil authorities. We will, insofar as much as we are able, abide by the law of the land. But when the government, in any way, great or small, attempts to encroach upon their limitation of authority, we will, without second thought, defy their orders." If they call for us to shut down, to close our doors, to stop saying what the Bible says, or in any other way attempt to regulate our obedience to Christ, we will not comply. We must obey Christ rather than men. Period. This is important for us to know and understand because our country is growing increasingly immoral, irreligious, and indeed wicked. It is not a far-fetched idea that you and I could be staring down the barrel of similar legislation here in America in the not-so-distant future. I know, folks, that you and I have grown up in the good old times. When everything was good, we had the 2.5 children that uh, pursuit that Josh talked about, the white picket fence, we believed in the American dream and the American way, Folks, we need to come to terms with the reality that that is not where we live anymore. Things are rapidly progressing in a different direction. And further, here in West Texas, we find ourselves in this little bubble that's almost dissociated from what's taking place in the culture at large. But let us not be like ostriches and stick our heads in the sand, saying that doesn't apply to me, that doesn't apply to me, when we see clearly that God's word and God's truth is being attacked. John Calvin said, a dog dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward to not speak up when my master is attacked. So today, oh, one more note there. 20 states in America have already passed similar legislation, by the way. 20 out of 50. So today, we're going to just seek to answer, what does the Bible say? about homosexuality. I realize that a lot of you have grown up in church or you've been a believer for a long time. It seems like we all have some semblance of understanding that uh, the Bible says that homosexuality is sinful, but do we know why? We don't want to just be echo chambers. We want to know what the Word says. Further, perhaps we don't think that homosexuality is sinful. We want to have God's Word shape and change what we think and what we believe. So our aim this morning is not to bash anyone in hatefulness. 
nor is it going to be to soften or lessen the clear teaching of Scripture. But we just want to know what is the truth. So, to that end, this is going to be a sort of systematic overview of what Scripture teaches. We're not going to just walk through one text this morning, so keep your Bible handy. If you're taking notes, I'll make sure to give you our cross-references. But we're going to have three major headings, God's good design, man's utter depravity, and God's immeasurable grace. We begin by looking at God's good design in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and we're going to read from 26 to 31. This is the word of the Lord. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, as we seek to understand this very controversial topic, we don't want to have any controversy here. We don't want to have any qualms with what you have written. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see and to understand the beautiful design that you have intended in creation, that we would submit ourselves joyfully to the word of the Lord and that we would leave from here ready to evangelize a lost world. We pray for this in your name, amen. God's good design here in Genesis 1. Our focus first, verse 26 and 27, that God created But not only did he create, notice the order of events. He speaks first in verse 26, let us make man in our image. This is God giving a sort of plan of action. Here is what is going to take place. This is what we are going to do. Let us make man in our image. The plan is to create mankind, number one, and then having the ability to create mankind however he sees fit, he says... Let us create man in our image. A twofold plan after his likeness. And then, thirdly, to give them dominion over all the earth. I want you to note that God was not coerced into doing this. No one in the text, and you can read before in Genesis 1 and after, no one is compelling God to create. No one is coercing God into creating No one is, there is no external force outside of God that is in some way, shape, form, or fashion compelling him to create, nor was he, contrary to popular belief, lonely. And so he created. Simply, the text tells us, 
God wanted to create. God decided we're going to create man. And we're not just going to create humanity. We're going to create them in our image. Verse 27 says that he executed this plan. So God created man in his own image. Verse 26, let's do this thing. Verse 27, it's done. Notice the goodness of God on display in creating man. He displays his goodness in the fact that he creates man at all. He didn't have to. And he displays his goodness in creating man in his own image. Surely he could have created man to be an infinite number of things, but God chose to give man dignity in the very creation of man as he creates man Imago Dei. That's the theological term meaning in his own image. God makes his plan to create man and then he creates him and he gives him dignity. Human worth and value is intrinsic to mankind because it was given by God himself in creation. This is why every single Christian, without, without question, every single Christian must be against abortion because it is destroying the image of God in the womb. We believe in human dignity stronger than anyone says because we have the written word. We have it revealed to us in scripture that mankind is created in the image of God. He is given value by God himself. The end of verse 27 tells us, male and female... He created them. Male and female, he created them. One more time, male and female, he created them. What a counter-cultural truth this is. God created male and female. Part of the plan God had in mind in verse 26, in his deciding and planning to create man, included Creating male and female. This was on purpose is what I'm saying. God did this intentionally is what we're saying. It was not accidental. It was not an afterthought. It was not as though God created male and female and said, Oh, would you look at that? Oh, wow. Okay, well, I guess we got male and female now. No, he intended to create male and female. Otherwise, it wouldn't have happened. Do we see... God's sovereignty in creation, that he didn't have to create at all. He didn't have to create man, and he didn't have to give man dignity, and he didn't have to create male and female. It was entirely up to him, and what he decided to do was to create, and to create man, and to give man dignity, and to create man male and female. God is sovereign over creation. I want you to also notice there is no back and forth here. God doesn't say that he creates mankind and then questions him on his gender identity. Did you see that in your Bible? If you did, we have better Bibles in the library. We would be happy to give you one. There's no back and forth here. There's no dialogue. Man is completely silent because he's not quoted at all, is he? Man says nothing. Man is simply being created. He is being given uh, Dignity in being created in the image of God. And then he is told what his identity is. You are male. You are female. 
The clay has no right to tell the potter what it wants to be. Have you ever held clay? The clay does nothing. It shapes and it molds to the potter's desires. The clay has no right to tell the potter what it wants to be. God is not creating man and then leaving it up to him to determine his gender identity. God created mankind as either male or female. And listen, this is permanent and it is not reversible and it cannot be altered. Why? Because God made it that way. This is how God decided to do it. Now, I'm harping on this because we must see that we believe that there are only two genders, not because we are homophobic or transphobic, but because the Bible says it. We do not ground our line of thinking or our worldview or our reasoning in whatever the so-called experts and scientists of the day decide. We ground every last bit of our belief system in what God has said. The way that the world believes and thinks is, well, I think, well, the way I see it, the way that the Christian thinks is, it is written. We believe what God's word says. And it says he made male and female, and that's it. He didn't create a gender spectrum. He created two. Now this is an important distinction to make further because we can hear stories of people who are convinced to the soul that they are a man or a woman trapped in the opposite sex's body and they need to be liberated. They will tell stories of trauma, of people not affirming their gender identity and using the so-called proper pronouns. And because you are a loving and kind person, you will say, well, who am I to tell this person what they feel? Well, who am I to, to, to tell this person what they think? You know, I don't know. I can't get inside of their brain. And you're right. You can't. But what you do know is that God created male and female. You do know Psalm 139 that says that we were intricately woven in the womb. That means that the way you were designed was on purpose. We can be easily swayed by emotionalism, by convincing argumentation, or because we love someone, or so-called science that's always changing in the direction of depravity. And we can become convinced that homosexuality is not wrong, that transgenderism is not wrong, but it's instead how this person was born as indicated by how they feel. But the basis of all belief, the basis of our worldview, how we see the world, is not what people say, it's what God says. Look at God's command in 28 through 30. We're not going to go into great detail of what he all, all that he talks about here. But after making male and female, the text says that God blessed them. This is so important for us to get. Verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them. God blesses them by commanding them. Do you see this? God blesses them and then tells them what to do. It is a blessing to do things God's way. It is not as though 
we hate people and we want to impose upon them some sort of restrictive way of life, it is a blessing to obey the Lord. After making male and female, he blesses them. What, what is the command? Be fruitful and multiply. What does that mean? Have children. Go have babies. God's command to both men and women is to have children. Notice then that the one needs the other to do as the Lord has commanded. He created marriage to be the confines within which both man and woman would obey God's command. We know that because of the fall, that it's not always physically possible for male and female within the confines of a marriage to be fruitful and multiply. But this text instructs us that that where that is not an issue, that God's command in marriage is for that couple to be fruitful and multiply. It's not an option. Whether or not the couple decides to, God says, go do it. It is the command in creation, my friends. In the very created order. Let us not overlook this fact, brethren, that the text tells us that God blessed them. The command to have children is not burdensome. It is a blessing. The command to reproduce is God's blessing upon mankind, specifically marriages. And we know that this is true because even after the fall in Genesis 9, God issues the same command again to Noah and the people who were on the ark. He says, go be fruitful and multiply. In other words, he meant this. Even in a fallen world, God's good design for men and women in marriage is to be fruitful and multiply. We need not go much further to understand why then so-called homosexual marriage is not going to be able to obey this command. Lastly from this text, verse 31, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. The way that this is written indicates to us that God was well pleased with what he had made. Think of what that means. God was pleased that he had made man in his image. It pleased God to do that. God was pleased that he made them male and female. And he was pleased that he blessed them by commanding them to go and be fruitful and multiply. This was a good thing in the eyes of God. So, We speak against homosexuality and transgenderism in favor of what is known as heterosexuality, not because, first and foremost, that it's morally right, but because it's good. Because this is how God designed it. And it's a good thing to fall in line with what God has created. But as always, that's not enough for mankind, is it? Our second heading is man's utter depravity. You can go ahead and flip to Romans 1. We'll get there in just a bit. By chapter 3 of Genesis, this beautiful scene that he created is devastated by disobedience. What we commonly refer to as the fall occurs in chapter 3. As you know, Adam and Eve both eat the forbidden fruit and sin entered this perfect creation. 
this fall would have lasting and incredibly damaging effects, not just on humans, but on all of creation. By chapter 6, sin has caused so much damage that it says in verse 5 of chapter 6 that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. He had just said in chapter 1 that it was very good, but now look at the effects of sin. It's important for us to remember as we look towards Romans 1 in just a bit. You know what comes next? God destroys the world in judgment in the flood for its wickedness. Only sin was not rid from the world. Sin had already sunk its iron claws into the very fabrics of humanity. And by chapter 9, or 19 rather, of Genesis, sexual perversion is so severe and so heinous that God rains down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. He completely and utterly wipes them out. Think about that. This culture, these cities... Sodom and Gomorrah, they had become so perverse and wicked in pursuit of their passions that the only response from Almighty God was to burn it to the ground. He wiped them off the face of the planet. Jude teaches us in his short letter about what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. And his short statement will give us a bit of insight into the why behind God's raining down fire. It says in verse 7 of Jude, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Did you hear that? They serve as an example. What does that mean? That Sodom and Gomorrah was not a one-off event. This exemplifies what the end of sexual perversion is. Now we understand sexual immorality, but Jude uses this terminology, unnatural desire. Why? Because God created male and female. And he designed the natural order of sexual relations to be between a man and a woman in the confines of marriage. Any deviation from the confines of marriage becomes sexual immorality. And any deviation from the male and female order is to pursue unnatural desires. Jude says that when a people is overcome with these lusts and searches for ways to indulge these desires, they will find themselves under the judgment of God. God's perfect law is given to the people. Leviticus is all law. You want to hear what God's thoughts are on this matter. Leviticus 18, 22. This is word for word. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Abomination is a very strong word. That means something that produces feelings of disgust. I know that this is a word that is probably assaulting to some people's ears. But my friends, this is what the Bible calls it. This is what God had written in the law of Moses for people to know. God's command, God commands those who are to be his holy people to not engage in this act because it is an abomination to do so. It goes further than that, though. 
Leviticus 20.13. Leviticus 20.13 tells us what the punishment is. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. How does God feel about homosexuality? He burned Sodom and Gomorrah to the ground. And then he wrote in the law of Moses that this act was deserving of the death penalty because it's an abomination. I know what you might be thinking. But Pastor Matt, isn't that the Old Testament? We're not under the law anymore. I thought we were under grace now. You're right. Definitely. But this teaches us exactly how God views this particular sin. He has not changed his mind on it. What he said still stands because he created male and female. And that was his intended design in mind when he created sexuality. Further, we know that God continues to view it this way because even in the New Testament, God is actively against this sin. Now we arrive at Romans 1. Look at it, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Allow me to just say a word about Romans. This is specifically for those who might not be fond of what we are saying today and think that we should only focus on love and grace. Romans, as you know, is a thorough exposition of the gospel. Paul tells us that the gospel is his whole focus in this letter in verse 16. You can look at it. He says that I am not ashamed of the gospel. He says just before then that he's eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. Then two verses later, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed. What are we saying? Paul knows that in order to faithfully teach or preach the gospel, you have to speak about God's wrath. Further, you should not be ashamed in doing so. Brothers and sisters, you and I should not be ashamed of what God has said. We should not be ashamed of calling sin what God calls sin. We should not be ashamed to speak of God's wrath. Do you know why? Because God isn't. Because He wrote it in a book and handed it down throughout the generations. In order to experience the power of God in the gospel that Paul speaks of in verse 16, you have to deal with the wrath of God. Before we can tell them that, the God, that God loves them, they need to first know that God will judge them. Paul will say in Romans 8, chapter 1, I mean, I'm sorry, chapter 8, verse 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But before we get to that, we must know that there is only condemnation for those who are not in Christ Jesus. We will not capitulate and we will not soften the message against any sin. We will not try to find more socially acceptable verbiage 
We will simply present the truth as God has written it because it's his gospel. And so Paul goes on to present the truth of the gospel by spending from chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, talking about man's condition and God's wrath. Let's deal briefly with this. The section is here opening by speaking of God's wrath towards all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. Ungodliness is speaking of sin towards God. Think of an irreverent or indifferent attitude towards God, a lack of the fear of God. And unrighteousness refers to horizontal sin. That is, the the, the kind of sin that we commit against other people. Paul is including both to say that it all deserves God's wrath. All of it. Now lest you think this is simply a sermon about bashing homosexuality, let's look again. Paul says all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. That means all of it, folks. That means greed, that means anger, that means jealousy, that means adultery, that means all of it. All of it. All sin that is found in a sinner that has not been laid upon Christ on the cross will be judged and it will receive the wrath of God. Now, often we think of God's wrath and we think of the end times, don't we? We think of the white horse, we think of Christ's blood, a robe dipped in blood, We think of the apocalypse. We think of perhaps people spending eternity in hell. And that's certainly the wrath of God. But notice that Paul is saying that the wrath of God is revealed. Folks, that's present tense right now. That God's wrath, it is revealed today, right now, in this lifetime. God's wrath is revealed in this life against sin. Now, to be sure, it's not the fire and brimstone sort of wrath that we normally think of. It's a different manifestation of God's wrath. It is, we will see, the wrath of God's abandonment. Before we see what that looks like, though, what is it that stokes up this wrath of God in the first place? The first thing that he mentions is that men suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. The analogy is often given regarding the word suppress, of trying to push an aired-up beach ball down in the water. You try to do that, you push it down, and it always comes back up. Mankind, because of its depravity, tries to push down, to silence, to stifle, to soften the truth about what God has said and who He is. And they do this, why? Because they love their sin. If you love your sin... You will hate the truth. If you love the truth, you will hate your sin. The next few verses go on to display that the primary truth they suppress is the knowledge of God. And we can read through it, verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it known to them, has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Listen to verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools 
and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Though God has made himself known in creation, sinful man always suppresses that truth. They know he's there. They know this planet did not just randomly appear because gases and dust exploded one day. They know that God is real, but they don't want to acknowledge him as God. Maybe you have friends who are unbelievers. What do they do when they're in big trouble? In a very difficult situation. Can you pray for me? They know God is real. They know God is there, but they're refusing to acknowledge him. They don't want to worship him or live a life of gratitude unto him. Instead, what do they do? They invent new religions or they come up with new ways to justify their sinful behavior. Like the science tells us, experts say, these are those who Paul speaks of who are claiming to be wise but becoming fools. Claiming to have all insight, claiming to be on the cutting edge, claiming to be progressive and forward thinking, they become fools. To exchange the glory of God in favor of created things is the height of foolishness. Because they did this, look at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Let's keep reading. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That is a scathing rebuke of mankind. To exchange the glory of God in favor of created things, it is indeed the height of foolishness. God gives them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchange the truth about God for a lie, and they worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. Because of the passionate pursuit of perversion and the utter disregard for God and His commands, God gives people over to their desires so that they can fill their hearts with the full measure of their depravity. This is God's wrath upon the people. 
is letting them have their sin. If the most tender and caring and merciful and loving thing God can do for people is to give them himself, then the most severe punishment that he can inflict upon us in this lifetime is giving us our sin. Verses 26 and 27 show us that the first specific sin mentioned here is God giving up a people to is homosexuality. Look at it again. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. If God views homosexuality as an abomination, could there be a harsher judgment on a people than to give them over to those passions. To allow them to have it and for it to run rampant. Verse 28, they didn't acknowledge God, so God gave them up to a debased mind to do more and more and more of what should not be done. So they were filled with every manner of unrighteousness. Do you know what's also happening here? As God's wrath is being executed upon mankind who is trading in the truth about God for a lie, it's also at the same time storing up wrath for the last day, for the day of wrath. That's why he's giving them over to it. Have more of it. And on the last day, you'll get the full measure of God's unbridled, infinite, eternal fury against unrighteousness. God's wrath being revealed against homosexuality and transgenderism and all other forms of sexual perversion and deviancy is when he removes the floodgates. He allows the floodgates to fall and the mighty rushing river of depravity floods their minds and their heart without restraint. Have it all. Have it all. Have your fill. Their passions lead them away from God They abandon any notion of a holy, righteous God. So God abandons them. That's what the text says. This is perhaps the scariest text in all of Scripture because it shows us what happens when God gives sinful man the desires of his heart. It is because of this perversion that all sorts of lunacy comes about. Why do we have laws like this taking place in Canada? Why do we have this notion of gay marriage? Why do we have men parading as women, dominating women's sports? Why do we have Pride Month? Why do we have Drag Queen Story Hour? Because we are witnessing the wrath of God as it's being revealed from heaven, as God abandons people who have turned their backs on Him. It is never a sign of progress in any civilization when it becomes more tolerant towards sexual sin of any kind. In fact, it's not just a sign of a coming downfall or downgrade, but it is a sign that that culture is currently in a downfall and they are falling down the side of a hill at breakneck speed. If any of us think 
that this is as far as it's going to go and it'll go no further, we do not understand depravity. And we would do well to continue to study this text. Because Paul is saying, when you see what you're seeing, it is because God has given people over to their sin to continue to do more of what ought not to be done. And this is a people with darkened hearts and debased minds. It is utter depravity to celebrate a man mutilating his body to fit the ideas of his debased mind. It is utter depravity to celebrate a sin that is so detestable in the eyes of God. And it is a high-handed, arrogant, flagrant sin when the so-called LGBTQ community hijacks God's covenant sign, the rainbow. It's his covenant sign to never destroy the world again in, with water. And they hijack that and use it as their logo that celebrates what God calls an abomination. You know what that is? It's thumbing the nose at God. It's wicked and demonic when corporations like Disney and Nickelodeon, who make primarily children's programming, are recasting women's roles with men and having various shows and commercials that promote the absurdity of gender identity, and they celebrate perverse sexual desires. It is even worse when a government that is supposed to protect its people is not only condoning this kind of behavior, but they are celebrating it. And further, they are actively speaking against anyone who speaks against it. In so doing, they are attempting to shut the doors of heaven and cut off homosexuals from any sort of hope. We are in an avalanche of wickedness, my friends. And you and I both know that an avalanche does not go back up the mountain. But there is hope. Look at 1 Corinthians 6. Verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We say here without any qualification or equivocation that the homosexual and transgender will not inherit the kingdom of God. Homosexuality is not just a poor lifestyle choice. It is a sin against God as it disregards Him and His created order. And it is an unnatural form of sexuality, and those who practice it will go to hell. It is also true that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, and he saves homosexuals and transgenders alike. Look at verse 11. Such were some of you. He's writing to Christians And he's telling them that some among them 
used to be homosexual, but they're not any longer. There is great hope for the idolater, for the adulterer, for the drunkard, and for the homosexual. That is to say that those who are in this lifestyle are not beyond the saving arm of Almighty God. Jesus Christ can wash them of this sin and sanctify them. And they too can stand no longer in their filth, but in the beautiful robes of Christ's imputed righteousness that you and I stand in. Isn't this text just absolutely amazing? Think of all of the texts that we've read. God wipes out Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone. God says this is an abomination. God says it deserves death. The wrath of God is revealed in people being given over to this lifestyle. Yet, they can be washed. They can be sanctified. They can be made new. Such were. That is past tense, my friends. That means that there is no such thing as a gay Christian. Because Paul here is showing us that this is something that belongs to the old lifestyle before you were made new in Christ. That might be who you used to be, but now you have been made new, you have been washed, and you have been sanctified. This is much better than conversion therapy. This is conversion. This is also precisely the kind of thing, listen clearly, that Canada has outlawed. And in so doing, they are preventing homosexuals from receiving salvation. Understand, church, this is not merely a political move. This is a satanic device intended to keep people from knowing God. Because that's ultimately what, this ha- what happens. We do not war against flesh and blood We're not supposed to rage against politicians, but we understand what is happening behind the scenes in the unseen world. That there are powers that be that want to destroy mankind. And how do they do it? They do this whenever you want your sin. Get more of it. Yeah, get more. I want to quote John MacArthur here. He said, quote, because this is so important for us here to walk away with. Quote, homosexuals are not the enemy. They are the mission field. End quote. Brothers and sisters, perhaps you have people who live this lifestyle in your life and you wonder what to do. Well, let me remind you of what we covered today as some takeaways. And I'd also point you to your bulletin where I've included a short list on the inside left-hand side. It's a short list of Helpful resources on this topic. First, you need to be grounded in a biblical understanding of mankind. I mean that you must believe and hold fast to the biblical teaching that there is only one male and one female. Only male and female. There is no spectrum of gender or sexuality, and there is no such thing as gender identity. God created male and female, and he created sexuality to be enjoyed within the confines of a union between a man and a woman. We don't believe that because it's objectively true. We believe it because God said so. Second, you need to have the mindset that Paul does in Romans 1.16, that you're not ashamed of the gospel. 
Though the whole world be against this teaching, though it be outlawed, though people want to disown you and no longer be around you because of this, that you're not ashamed of what the Bible says and you're not ashamed of it. You're not ashamed of saying that God's wrath is kindled against homosexuality and that you're not ashamed to say that homosexuals can be freed from this sin. Third, evangelize. Part of not being ashamed of the gospel is sharing the gospel. Tell your loved ones that are in this lifestyle of the wrath of God against them and the free offer of grace that Christ extends to them. When you keep silent, you keep them away from hope. You keep them away from salvation. Don't do that when you have been given it freely. Freely offer it to others. Don't hold back speaking of God's wrath or God's grace. Share it. Fourth and lastly, pray for them. Ultimately, in your sharing of the gospel, you will not be the one who saves anybody. Whether homosexual or adulterer or alcoholic, none of you or I or anyone in this world can save anyone. God does that. We share the gospel and we must, but remember at the same time that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's not the power of us. It is His gospel, His message, His holiness offended, His laws broken, His grace extended, His power to save. Pray for their salvation with a broken heart before the Lord, knowing that God saves sinners. Let's stand. We'll say a word of prayer, we'll sing together and we will be dismissed. Father in heaven, thank you for speaking so clearly in your word. We thank you that you hate sin of all kinds so much, yet you've given us a way out. Thank you for laying sin upon Christ and giving us the free offer of salvation. It was not free, it was costly. It cost Christ his life. He spilled his blood. But thank you that all of us whether whatever sin we are in, that all of us can be made new by trusting in Christ Jesus. We can be made new, washed and sanctified. Thank you, Lord. Please give us the courage to speak clearly and lovingly to those that we know that are in this lifestyle for the salvation of some. We pray this in your name. Amen.